Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. When we're talking about birth, we're talking about entering into a particular body and a particular time and place. And I I think what I wanted to be able to do is to talk about birth both in somewhat abstract terms as an idea, as a concept, as a storyline, but also to acknowledge that birth is always happens in the material world and in, in, in contact. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. I am delighted today to welcome to the show Jennifer Banks. She is Senior Executive Editor at Yale University Press. Her work has appeared in the Boston Review and Pleiades, among other publications. Today we are talking about her recent book, Natality, Toward a Philosophy of Birth. Jennifer Banks, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I am just ecstatic to get into this book and the ideas that are in it. And I think as a way of beginning to set the stage for our listeners, I want to ask you about front and center, the title of this book, because as you say in your introduction, it was not a word that you were initially familiar with, but you were reading through a manuscript there at Yale University Press, and you happened upon this word, natality. And I wonder if you could give us both a brief definition and why that word in particular grabbed your attention that day. Yeah, I think it grabbed my attention because it, it, it encapsulated an idea that I felt was missing from our discourse, from our conversations, from our institutions of higher learning, to the books I was seeing published. And that is really that we have, for instance, death is an event that we experience in our lives. And then we have this concept of mortality as ourselves as subject to death, as our lives as being defined by that event of death. 
And so it's both about a kind of event and our relationship with it. But we don't really have so much a sense um, or a language that conveys those sets of meanings for birth. So I think we tend to talk about birth as a singular event. On our, our birth certificates, it's a very precise time and place. But what I was really interested in is what is the place of birth in the stories we tell about our lives? How does birth shape who we are, defining our limits, our possibilities? How is it part of how we understand ourselves as creatures? So that was, I, I, I thought natality, even in its strangeness, was broad enough and expansive enough an idea to, to get at kind of those larger sets of meanings. I love this idea of natality in its strangeness, where birth is something that we all share, and yet it's not something that we talk about. You, In the early parts of the book, you, you reference several people that say that birth is a silence or birth is a hidden thing. And one of the places where natality began to take shape for you, you dove into the writings of a 20th century Jewish philosopher by the name of Hannah Arendt. And I, I wonder if you could talk about how Arendt thought about natality here. Yeah, and she had coined this phrase, natality. I don't think it belongs to her in any particular way, but I had found it partly through her. She was the person mentioned in this manuscript where she's hit where I came upon the term. And so I really started my own investigations by reading her and thinking through how she had understood natality. And this was a, a term she coined in the wake of the Holocaust as she was trying to understand what had happened in Nazi Germany. She was a German Jewish refugee and had come to the U.S. and written her masterwork, The Origins of Totalitarianism, and then in a subsequent book called The Human Condition, she had finally come to that word natality. But it was something that was threaded through her work even um, before World War II. It was really about how do our beginnings shape the rest of our lives? And for her, it was connected with an understanding of ourselves as actors. So birth was evidence of our ability to begin things. She's often thought of as one of the great philosophers of beginnings, and it was largely all, all her sense of understanding of beginnings was encapsulated in the word natality for her, by virtue of our having been born, that we can act and we can be participants in our world. One of the things that I like, and Arendt shows up throughout your book, Natality, but one of the things that I really like about what you do with Arendt's ideas of natality is, yes, our birth begins and shows us the sort of openness of action and possibility. But you also talk about how Arendt is a philosopher of openness, how throughout our lives, every moment and every interaction with another could be seen as a kind of quiet or small birth, giving us once again, even with what has come in the past, a new field of possibility. Now, when I say that, I'm putting all this in my words, I'm paraphrasing. Do I have it correct the way that you're thinking about Arendt here and using Arendt in this idea of natality, or would you say it in a different way? No, absolutely. That's right. She saw reality as an unfolding sequence of miracles, which is a strange thing to hear from a secular Jewish philosopher who is writing about genocide. It's not really the understanding that you would expect from her, but that's really how she saw reality. And she thought that the minute we lose our understanding 
that nothing's scripted. Everything is constantly being created and recreated and it's all unprecedented and spontaneous and none of this has ever happened before. And so we can predict and we can think we can control the, the future or the sequencing of events, but we can't and we don't know. And so she was always alive to that sense of the spontaneous. And I think it was both for a sense that something terrible could happen, that what she had witnessed. It was both that horrible things could be birthed but also that regeneration was possible and that newness was possible. We weren't stuck. We weren't part of a reality that was constantly recreating itself. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jennifer Banks. She is senior executive editor at Yale University Press. Her work has appeared in the Boston Review and Pleiades, among other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Natality, Toward a Philosophy of Birth. Well, as we're talking about Arendt and this notion of what Hannah Arendt said about this enfolding and unfolding sequence of miracles that, that allows us in every moment to create something anew, you took this idea of natality, this idea of open possibility, and you began to read it as a philosophical exercise. And I, I want to ask you about this because the subtitle of your book is Toward a Philosophy of Birth. And there's a point in your early chapters where you say, a full philosophy of natality is yet to be written. And so I, I wonder about how you saw the limitations of this project and how that helped to shape how you executed the project. Yeah, I think I was haunted throughout by what I could not find and what was not there largely in our written historical records, that if you go and study philosophy, of course, this was a tradition that wasn't written by women. So the people who were most intimately involved in birth, which isn't to say that men weren't involved in birth and didn't have a, a right to be thinking about it and writing about it, but that there was a very crucial missing perspective. So I, what I would love to read is a sweeping intellectual history of birth that goes from our earliest sources up through the present day. But there is a question of how you would even research that, never mind writing. And, and it certainly surpassed my own areas of comfort and expertise. But I, there were periods I, I got it really into certain literatures that it's certainly the biblical literature is hugely interesting. A lot of ancient Greek literature has a tremendous richness when it comes to the topic of birth. There's a lot of very interesting ancient Buddhist writing about birth. So th there was all this material that I was able to find, but as a not as a full-time academic myself, I'm also working as editor, was limited in terms of the number of years I could exclusively devote to researching. So I think there's a, a tremendous amount that could still be done and just such an interesting thing for us to continue to uncover the ways that people have thought about birth and made sense of it. That being said, one of the things that I loved about your book, Natality, was, and you don't just start with this philosophical reflection and then just talk about Hannah Arendt, but in addition to your chapter on Arendt, you also talk about Friedrich Nietzsche, Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley, Sojourner Truth, Adrian Rich, and Toni Morrison. And this sweep in each of these chapters, one of the things that delighted me and fascinated me was you did your best to dig into the birth stories of these individuals, both 
if we could recover them, what were the circumstances of their births? Were they difficult? Were they pain-free? Kind of how did that work? But also if they themselves were mothers in any way, did they also have, what was their experience with birth as well? And I wonder if you could talk to my listeners a little bit about what doing that particular research was like, because I can imagine it was sometimes probably difficult to find this particular trove of information about these thinkers. Yeah, I mean, if neutrality is really about um, the stories we tell about an event that shapes our lives, I wanted to model that in how I researched and wrote the book. So for it not to be a kind of disembodied um, set of ideas, but it also wasn't just a kind of narration of events that was disconnected from what people thought and from their own intellectual projects, but also from larger intellectual projects that they inherited, participated in. So yeah, I was trying to interweave those two things and to think about how their experiences with birth, which were all very different, shaped their thinking and how their thinking in turn shaped both their lives and the lives of really our culture. These were all very um, significant people who made a significant impact on our culture. So they were writers that I admire and that I learned a lot from, but they were also people that I thought wrestled with questions and problems that are still very much a part of our world today. And so by thinking through what, what they had lived through, but also their body of work, the ways they inherited or revolutionized the tradition they were heirs to, how that is something we can use and draw on to better understand the role of birth in our world today. One other aspect that simply delighted me about the construction of your book, Natality, is that as we move from chapter to chapter, you're not just giving us disconnected slices of these thinkers and their lives, but and this is a, a language that I think comes from Toni Morrison, the notion of tar, this kind of sticky interconnectedness between different times and places and peoples and ancestors and the current generation and progeny. And you're building the tar between these different thinkers, showing us not just how they lived their lives, but how they interconnected in time and sometimes in dispute over these ideas. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that aspect of the construction of the book, to this finding this tar between these thinkers. Yeah, so I start with Hannah Arendt. I just moved briefly back in time to understand where Arendt was coming from and which questions, problems she was wrestling with that she had inherited from the thinkers that came in the decade or, or a century or so before her and then came back to, to Arendt and move forward. So there's a little bit of a uh, curve in time, which confused some of my readers. But I, what I was trying to do is to start with her. And then for each chapter, there's a kind of unresolved question or problem that thinker hadn't solved for us and that I needed to turn to someone else. And I think part of my approach in writing the book is not that there's one perfect person who's just nailed it and they told us everything we need to know about birth but actually that we need a full chorus and that this is about human plurality. Birth is about encountering another person in the most intimate way you possibly could. And the way we think about birth has so much to do with 
how we think about otherness and difference and distance and intimacy and all these things that just have to do with dealing with other people. So part of, I, I think what I wanted to do in the book is to really bring alive that chorus. And they do their disputes between some of these thinkers um, in the case of Adrian Rich and Toni Morrison, or I'm sorry, and, and Hannah Arendt. There was a very specific critique that Rich was making of Arendt. Arendt wrote specifically about Nietzsche. Mary Shelley was responding to Mary Wollstonecraft's death. Mary Wollstonecraft was her mother. So some of them, they were very specific connections. In others, it's more sort of part of the culture that they inherited. I think we've all in in ways inherited the culture that Nietzsche helped create in the 19th century. And so, yeah, I, I wanted to bring them alive. I think that my sense is that natality is a huge concept, that this isn't about one person developing a theory and they owning it and but really about trying to develop a framework that could hold all these very different, sometimes conflicting accounts together. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Jennifer Banks. She is senior executive editor at Yale University Press. Her work has appeared in the Boston Review and Pleiades, among other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Natality, Towards a Philosophy of Birth. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Jennifer Banks. She is senior executive editor at Yale University Press. Her work has appeared in the Boston Review and Pleiades, among other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Natality, Toward a Philosophy of Birth. As we are thinking about these figures that you address in your book, Natality, whether it's Friedrich Nietzsche, Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley, Sojourner Truth, Adrian Rich, etc., one of the phrases that comes up a couple of times as you're reflecting on these figures is, this person is a natal thinker. And I wonder if you could help us to understand when you're talking about someone who thinks natally, when you're talking about a natal thinker, what does that mean for you? And how can that be distinguished from other types of thought? Yeah, I chose these seven people specifically because they wrote a lot about birth, but they wrote about it in a way that to me seemed about using birth as their primary horizon, which doesn't mean they didn't write about death or have death within view. But I think our typical way of writing something like biography of telling a life story is that death is the horizon when we're just at a distance or approaching that horizon. And what I think that they did is use birth as the primary 
reference point. So that's what they continually to come back to in their writing. So these weren't people who just wrote a little bit about birth. They have one book where they wrote about it. There are a lot of people who have done that in very interesting ways. But these were people that I, I felt like consistently had returned to birth. And there's not one way to be um, a natal thinker. I think it's just that birth is that seed that's always there. And so there are, in my own mind, there is a kind of creative energy to that kind of work. There tends to be a hopefulness of varying kinds. So that hope doesn't look the same in all, any of these writers' work. But there's a sense of regenerative possibilities that even when they're writing about very bleak topics, they seem to be able to tap into to something that is is generative. There are other people who I found who wrote a lot about birth, but there always there seemed to be a very different animating principle behind it. Someone like Sylvia Plath, who wrote so beautifully and movingly about birth, but I would not describe as a natal thinking thinker as I define that. Someone else might define natal thinking differently, and that's fine. I'm fascinated by this, and especially with your contrast just now with Sylvia Plath. And one of the places where this really just the lights went off for me was when you began to read through the corpus of Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche is the one male in this list here. And so the one who I think to a distant reader might be the least likely to be a natal thinker. But as you began to read Nietzsche for me on the page, and I, 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 would, I would say that 30 years ago when I was a philosophy major, I had some conversance with Nietzsche's work. But it had never occurred to me to think about reading Nietzsche with birth and, and gestation as the driving metaphor. And I was, I was amazed at how, pardon the pun, at how fecund this metaphor is in understanding what Nietzsche is doing from the beginning of his work with the birth of tragedy all the way through his last writings, even when he is, is no longer writing for publication, but is simply writing in the agony of his mental illness. I, I wonder if you could talk to my listeners a little bit about what you discovered as you began to think about Nietzsche as a natal thinker. Yeah, I think some people are surprised to find him there. In some ways, I was surprised because I I, w- I wasn't expecting to include him in the book. But he probably wrote more about birth than almost anyone, possibly more than even the other thinkers in my book. And I do think Hannah Arendt was responding in part to, to him and his body of work and coming up with this term natality. It's a very strange thing to find. I came to Nietzsche fairly late in life, and in some ways that was good just because I wasn't burdened with being trained in one school of thought, or we all know the shadows that hang about him and that have impacted his reputation over the last century or more. But yes, he just, I felt like I was tripping over birth um, and encountering him on the page. And then what I discovered, too, is that a lot of the men that I found that wrote a lot about birth, people like Rilke, Dage Lawrence, even Emerson, these were people that had either been heavily influenced by Nietzsche or in the case of Emerson, these were peers. Nietzsche described Emerson as the person he felt was his closest of kin intellectually. So, yeah, but there were also problems. I think part of why I was so compelled by it is that I think he wrestles with questions both about the theological questions about 
how are we made and how do we understand the nature of our own creation? But also very important questions about gender. He was a single man who I think loved children and was deeply interested in birth, saw this as just an incredibly miraculous, rich, interesting thing that we create these other human beings in our body, but was separated from that experience. He wasn't having children himself. He didn't have a romantic partner. He was only and pretty isolated and just working this all out on the page. And so there is a way in which he left us with a certain problem. (laughs) And then I, I think it was in looking at writers like Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley that I turned to next that you start to see how women of that, of that same era began to find different ways to work through some of the same questions. Well, and this, I think, begins to help us unpack even more your idea of natal thinking, because when we are thinking together from the standpoint not of being towards our death, as Heidegger might say, but instead of being towards our birth, towards our natality, that opens up for us extreme particularity and solidarity at the same time. At least this is the way that I'm reading it. Because as you are working through these different figures, all sorts of issues begin to arise. Sometimes you deal with them specifically, and sometimes they're just haunting the background. But we could talk about, as you've already said, gender as one thing to think about. But there's also race that begins to show up, and class, and the difference between feminism and womanism, and the reasons for those distinctions. And all of these things begin to pile on one after the other. As we think about the particularity of our birth, because our birth is to a family in a particular place and time, and I wonder if you could begin to talk with me and my listeners about some of these particularities, and as you were digging into this, how you, because you handled it so deftly, how you managed the inclusion or non-inclusion of these particularities in your analysis. Yeah, when we're talking about birth, we're talking about entering into a particular body and a particular time and place. And we come into the world with a certain kind of inheritance. And I I think what I wanted to be able to do is to talk about birth, both in somewhat abstract terms, as an idea, as a concept, as a storyline, but also to acknowledge that birth is always happens in the material world and in 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 context and that these contexts are very different for people. And this is part of why I think this book really is about human plurality. I think that our culture tends to be dominated by these wars when it comes to birth. Mommy wars, certainly debates over abortion, almost anything, it becomes extremely divisive. And I think the book is trying to, in a way, step back and say, we have to first start by listening. For someone like Sojourner Truth, who was, birth was about the production of capital. For people who were put through insured course birthing, this was part of the history of capitalism. And we have to acknowledge that doesn't mean that's all it was. And I think that her story shows so beautifully how she was able to imagine all different layers of it as part of her own experience and as part of a kind of broader human experience, but I don't think we can just wipe that away. So I think that to the degree that we can have any kind of philosophy of birth, 
it has to be rooted in in people's real and very varied experiences. And this is, again, one of the things that just delights me about the craft of your book, Natality. You, you just mentioned Sojourner Truth. So a, a woman born into slavery who was freed, who had several children, and who thought about woman's work in a very particular embodied way. And I'm thinking about this now in terms of the New Testament scholar Love Lazarus Seacrest, who says that when you read biblical texts, oftentimes they will rhyme with one another, and you can read into the rhymes. And so I look at that, and then I look at how you dealt with the writings of Toni Morrison, who herself was born several generations after the end of slavery, even the tail end of Jim Crow, and nevertheless is picking up these same themes that were lived by Sojourner Truth in novels like Beloved and the Bluest Eye. And so, again, what I see you doing, Jennifer Banks, is finding these kind of rhymes in these natal thinkers and really playing with the rhymes and seeing what we can discover in these resonances between both the embodied and the reflective experience. Now, when I say it that way, do I have it right or would you say it in a different way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was looking for difference. And I was also looking for common ground. And I think this is true of just our experience in general. And it's birth is the one thing that we really all share. We were, every single one of us is boring. And we forget that. We don't really think about that. On the other hand, our birth is experienced and understood by us in very different ways. So yeah, I was trying to find the balance. And there were, you know, I think there's, there's, uh, a more obvious rhyme between a Sojourner Truth and Toni Morrison. But there were also subtler confluences that I picked up even between someone like Nietzsche and, and Toni Morrison, which no one <laughs> talks about. But I, I think there are surprising things that when you start look, seeing their work, seeing different writers work through those lenses, you start to see interesting overlaps. Yeah, the, the coherence that you managed to find amongst the, this group of thinkers and the kind of common thread of natality was really pleasant to me as a reader. And we can think about those kind of resonances in the distant ways. In, we just talked about Sojourner Truth and Toni Morrison, but there are also very poignant resonances that show up here. So Mary Shelley comes into the world in a birth that results in the death of Mary Wollstonecraft from sepsis. And so there's there's a heartbreak in the existence of this child, knowing the child, Mary Shelley, lives knowing that she in some way is connected to the death of her mother. And so there is this gesture towards death being a part of this story as well. But I love how you've managed to not make death the primary actor, even in that story, and even in that connection. And so help us to understand, even in the face of tragedy, a tragic moment like that between Mary Wollstonecraft's death and Mary Shelley's life as connected to that death, how you managed to find the enlightened moment. I'm I'm thinking about that line from Hannah Arendt, where even in the darkest of times, we can still await enlightenment. You found some enlightenment in that moment, and I wonder if you'd talk to us about that. Yeah, even the darkest of times, we could deserve some illumination. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that Mary Wollstonecraft's death shortly after childbirth, was not such an unusual occurrence. We tend to think, oh, this is depressing. And some people have asked me, why are you telling these depressing stories? And I, I said, this is part of our history. This is 
I don't have the statistics at the, that at my fingertips at this moment, but it was very common. And I think that, what was it? One in four pregnancies ended in, or one, one in four infants did, survived their infancies. So it was a very common occurrence for to lose a child, for a woman to die in childbirth, particularly in that period in England. This was as hospitals were coming into existence and people hadn't discovered um, antibiotics and didn't realize they were carrying these bacteria in their hands. So there was actually a, a rise in maternal mortality rates. But this is part of the history of birthing. People's lifespans during that period were in the 30s, average lifespan. So she had, she was in her mid-30s when she died. And she had had a pretty full, amazing life. And I think that we can see that as readers. You can go to her body of work and discover just how courageous and brilliant she was. But her daughter was also able to do that. So this was a tragedy that she had never really been able to know her mother. But she was able to know her through her work. And this, I think, was she always experienced as a great gift to be in her mother's company on the page. And this was her mother was her greatest teacher and her husband's poet, Shelley's teacher, too. These were inspirations. So I see these are hard stories to read and they're certainly tragic, but they are also, I don't know, there's tremendous richness in them, too, in the fact that these people were able to write about them so movingly. And this draws me back to partially where we began the conversation. So we began with Hannah Arendt, and part of what caused her to begin to think about this idea of natality was, as I understand it, her experience with the Holocaust and living through both being sent to camps, but also, I imagine, knowing people and having connection to the massive amount of Jewish death that happened in the Holocaust. So Natality, if I'm understanding correctly, and natal thinking, if I'm understanding correctly, looks at these certain limitations like death, the restrictions of economic inequality, the restrictions of race, the restrictions of war and even genocide, and is attempting to find, even in those moments, the possibility that Arendt pointed to that every moment has a possibility for new and unexpected creation. Now, as I begin to draw together those connections, am I making the right connections or would you say this in a different way? No, I think that's absolutely right. I think for Arendt, it was partly knowing that she had been in this internment camp in France for women and that a lot of the women she had been there with had been sent to the gas chambers. And so there was this sense that she was astonished that she was still alive. This kind of shock, this sense of awe just at the mere fact of life that I think she never really lost. And I think that these other writers had that. There was a witnessing the miracle of life. And then there was also a strong affirmation of that. At the same time, there was a strong instinct to, to bear witness to the, you know, more difficult parts of our histories as well. I do think that from what I have seen in the world, what I've read, it's also just observing our, our culture. I actually think it's very often people who have suffered the most. They tend to be most appreciative of birth. They tend to value what they do have. I think in our in the U.S. now, the people who are speak most positively about birth tend to be poor minority communities. So I think there's something in that where 
perhaps just life itself isn't taken for granted. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Jennifer Banks. She is Senior Executive Editor at Yale University Press. Her work has appeared in the Boston Review and Pleiades, among other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Natality, Toward a Philosophy of Birth. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Jennifer Banks. She is Senior Executive Editor at Yale University Press. Her work has appeared in the Boston Review and Pleiades, among other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Natality, Toward a Philosophy of Birth. Well, on the dust flap of your book, Natality, there's a quotation from Christian Cobes Dumez, who's the author of Jesus and John Wayne. And she says, as the first line of her blurb, Natality is a quietly disruptive book. And I want to linger in that notion for a moment of quiet disruption and what this book is saying, what it isn't saying, and that to which it is gesturing. In the introduction to natality, you talk about a personal experience you had when your first child is born and driving to work, dropping off your child into the arms of, as you say, basically another woman. And then as you're driving to work, thinking to yourself, what am I doing? And what, what's gonna ha- what does this mean for my child? What does this mean for me? Something felt off. Something felt wrong. And you never explicitly talk about it here in your book, Natality, but you gesture towards it at several points. It seems to me like there's perhaps a politics of Natality. And I wonder am I feeling that right? And if you've thought about that, and if you have thought about that, maybe begin to line out in some brief strokes, what could we think about as a politics of natality or a natal politics? Yes. So I do think that is threaded throughout the book, whether I have a one sentence answer to that, I'm not sure. But I I, I think that there are real stakes to our ignorance about birth or evasion of the subject. I think that that we do talk about birth. We, we put balloons on our mailboxes when a baby's born. We have our celebrities on um, the covers of magazines. We have our reality TV shows, but there aren't actually that many forums for deeper conversations. And so what we have are people who tend to go through these major transformations in their lives without feeling like they have a way to process that. So. For many women, it's private conversations with mothers or sisters or friends. For men, I think there's very few ways where they can process it at all. So their lives are overturned if they have a child and it's huge and hopefully it's happy, but it's a huge change. And where there are grieving communities or groups that you could go to if you've experienced the death of of someone, but you can't just walk into a new mother's group. Unless you've just had a baby, even me as a mother, I can't really walk into a new mother's group. So there's on one level, there's a kind of imaginative failure there. And I think a kind of intellectual failure where this is just 
interesting and we should think about it. And it's tremendously imaginatively rich and it can inform the ways we see and imagine our world, sense our world. But there's certainly the kind of political implications too. And I think part of our treating list is like it's a niche subject is also reflected in our politics where in the U.S. most women don't get any or any significant maternity leave, even places that offer what is seen as good maternal benefits. Maybe it's six weeks unpaid. Maybe if you're lucky, it's three weeks paid. I don't know of anyone who had more than that in the U.S. Most of the women I knew had to shell out ten, fifteen thousand dollars um, at the hospital when they had a child. So these are things that are thought of very individualistically. Uh, this is something you're doing. You're a choice you've made for yourself, and you're going to be responsible for it. But I think there is certainly a kind of politics that would see these things as is more deeply integrated into who we are as people. And this, again, is why this book is about plurality, is because I think there's a real failure in seeing birth solely as a kind of individual experience, Uh, partly because it's not. It always involves more than one person. But it's also, it's going on around us all the time. So I could not have a child, and that would be my decision. And For many people, it's a decision that's right for them and makes sense. But that doesn't mean I can't be invested in the lives that are being born all around me at the same time. And we almost never hear that that kind of jump in the discourse. It becomes a a kind of debate between women who have children and children who don't and both saying, I made the right decision instead of, okay, this is part of our, our world. These children are being born and we have to figure out how to take care of them and raise them and as individuals, but also collectively as cultures. As I listened to your answer, you talked about this imaginative failure. And one of the things that came up for me is, forgive the technical term, it's oftentimes referred to as agnotology. It's the study of kind of learned or strategic ignorance, an ignorance that is useful to certain structures of power or the maintenance of certain divisions between people. And it almost sounded to me like you're suggesting that it's not an accident that we don't talk about birth, that instead this serves some interests somewhere to to have this kind of mystery around birth and this silence around birth. Am I overplaying my hand when I ask that, or does that feel right to you? And if so, would you care to comment on it? Absolutely. I think there's keep it behind closed doors and we can talk about it in idealistic ways and we can sentimentalize it. But then when it actually comes down to a woman who's just in the hospital, just had a cesarean and she's been all stitched up and she is sent back home without the support system she needs or a child needs additional care. And this is why I was trying to marry our concepts and our ideas and our stories with real history and material realities. Not to say this is only a, a material experience. I think for many people, this is the closest they will come to spiritual experiences. It could be a religious experience for many people, but it's always also experienced on a physical material level. 
in economic political context. So I, I think we could do so much better. <laughs> well, and again, I just want to say to listeners, your book, Natality, is such a rich trove of connections and, and possibilities. And I want to return to a word that has come up a lot in our conversation, plurality. There were several points in reading from chapter to chapter that you take moments and use the NPR reporters would say, you've given fact, 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 and then you step back and you say, what does this mean? And in those moments of stepping back and reflecting on what this means, you look at contemporary feminism and you say, this particular thinker was thinking about the questions of childbirth and motherhood that preoccupy contemporary feminism, but in a way that would not necessarily be legible to contemporary feminists. And one of the things that really did for me is you helped me to begin to understand and appreciate that contemporary feminism, contemporary womanism, these are not monolithic structures. They themselves are pluralities. They contain vast discourses and disagreements and the possibility for and again, here's this word for fecund connections and for gestative possibilities. Now, as a reader, as I'm saying this to you, have I got it right? Or would you add something or correct something in what I'm saying? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think there was a strain within 20th century American feminism that was about a rejection of motherhood, rejection of children. And sometimes that is overread as this is what 20th century feminism was. And in fact, there's all kinds of disagreements. And most of the women I have in the book, although not all, are feminists or were a part of the women's movement. Not all of them identified as feminists per se. But part of what I wanted to do is to recover some of those possibilities, which I think feel lost to us, even in looking at someone like Mary Wollstonecraft, who was fighting for women's freedom at, at a time where women really had few rights, but was also working out this idea of an ethics of care. So freedom and care were reconcilable. And this is something that comes really beautifully into fruition, I think, most of all with Toni Morrison, who talks about freedom and responsibility as these things that weren't in conflict. She talks about mother, a motherhood that's both nest, nest in adventure and in trail. And so I think still our culture tends to be dominated by freedom and responsibility on these like opposite tracks and the train don't meet. So it was really interested in people, the thinkers that could see how they were connected. And freedom without care was, what kind of freedom is that? What kind of culture just values individual liberty, but doesn't really have a way of thinking about our responsibilities to one another. A culture that's just solely focused on responsibility without an understanding that people have to have certain kinds of freedoms. And I think Mary Wollstonecraft was so brilliant in understanding that freedom was really the condition within which women were able to care when they were, when they had no power and their, their possibilities were limited in all kinds of ways it afforded them. And it made it harder for them to care for their people in their communities, their families. This was another expressly poignant moment for me in your book, Natality, when you do another one of these stepping back and asking, what does this all mean? And you look at 
21st century American culture particularly, and you say we're increasingly isolated, we're increasingly disconnected, we're increasingly dire in our predictions about the future and the possibilities for whether we're talking about climate change or the Anthropocene or what have you. And it's almost as if, and I want to make sure that I'm reading this correctly, it's almost as if you're offering natality and natal thinking as a kind of response to that kind of meta-pessimism, the, the, kind, the kind of death spiral almost that our culture has been in. Uh, did I read that moment right? And would you care to comment on that if so? Yeah, definitely. You, you read that right. Anna Arendt calls it a stupid cynicism. And she thought cynicism was a very dangerous thing because where it leaves people is just in a kind of passive um, stance where they can't act, they can't make changes. And for her in witnessing the Nazi regime, this had been a key part of how they had gained powers. People were just cynical and they didn't believe they could make any kind of difference. They, I think we see these this mood in our culture. And so... For her, birth was a great anti-totalitarian act. And I think that there's something in that, in, in not just thinking about birth again abstractly or in some kind of idealized form, but in actually thinking about with the birth of each person in our community, how this is a, you know, a whole new piece of history is about to unfold. And that, I think, is part of what makes it important that we care for that person and that we think of them as part of the communities we're in, that we have some responsibility to them. I think part of the the despair about there's no future for children, I think that comes from a place of testimony. I think you know people are are seeing the way the world is. They're trying to respond in a way that feels true to them and that, you know, acknowledges all of these problems. But ultimately, where does that leave someone? You know, and where does it leave that child that is actually being born, whether we think they should be or not? They're coming into the world. And so I think it, 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 the birth of the child is what recommits us to rebuilding the world. Now, you mention in the book that this project really began about 13 years ago, and you were thinking about it and turning it over in your mind and researching along the way. And you were doing that while balancing a full-time job and being a mother. And so I wonder, now that you are on this side of that 13-year journey of thinking about natality as a philosophy, as a philosophical locus, and thinking with these various figures that you've brought into the story that you're telling, how has your thinking been affected? How have you changed as a result of writing this book? Oh, I mean, it was just a transformative experience. I think in many ways it kept me, it kept me alive. I mean, I think I would have totally stayed alive anyway, but I think it made me feel more alive to be reading these writers, to be thinking, to be reading, to be working through these problems. It was just a tremendously rich experience for me. I think there are a lot of specific details, some of the things that made me think through that I have intuited in the culture, certain paradoxes. In many ways, 
I think one of the things that's made me comfortable with is just living with paradox and living with these certain contradictions. And I think that we come to this topic always with these very strong arguments and winner takes all. And in reality, these are not easy things for us to think about. These are the really the biggest questions we have about our existence and how we should live and how we should relate to one another and where we come from. And these are huge things. And I think it's important to see them as not resolved. These are the things we have to continually come back to and think through individually and as a culture. So I, that's probably the thing most of all is to realize that th there wasn't, there wasn't a final argument to make. I think that's, hard because we when we when it comes to this topic we expect arguments and i've mentioned at several points when introducing you that the book is recently out so it's been in the market for a little bit of time now and i wonder as you have been hearing from readers how have they been receiving the book and has anything in their reception of it particularly delighted you or surprised you Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been most moved, I think, by some of the interest I've had from very unexpected places like physicists and Mormon transhumanist people that I just wasn't expecting interest from. A woman who designs buildings um, for people with disabilities, for instance, was very interested in the book. Is going to be teaching it to her course um, for class. It's fall. I think in some of the responses, I saw all the politics that we're used to, which is that people want a kind of elevated argument. Certain, certain communities want a kind of pure, beautiful argument about the birth and its value. But then the minute you go to the details and people's stories, they find it depressing and they don't really want to have to think about it. So I think that has been a little frustrating because that's what I, I work so hard to try to break through that. And for us to be able to think of these things as interwound. But really, I have had a lot of men write to me. I've had a lot of older men who are, have grandchildren, great-grandchildren who are thinking through the topics still and understand that this is part of their lives and their family's lives. New mothers writing to me, responding to the book. So it's really been hugely interesting. Well, Jennifer Banks, I loved this book and the way that it is woven together, the way that it rhymes and resonates across these various figures, across these various timescales. It was a delight to read. I know that my listeners will get a lot out of reading your book, Natality. And as you said, it, it took 13 years to research and write the book. Thank you for the time that it took to create this project, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Jennifer Banks. She is senior executive editor at Yale University Press. Her work has appeared in the Boston Review and Pleiades, among other publications. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Natality, Toward a Philosophy of Birth. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. 
Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.